thank you for joining us this morning. Let's have the kids be dismissed to their classes upstairs. That goes through the fifth grade, and parents, you can pick them up upstairs after the service this morning. And thanks again for being here. There's a number of things uh, going on in the life of the church that you can see in the bulletin and see what is uh, happening in the weeks ahead. couple of big things. Tonight is our congregational meeting, and uh, we'd really, really love for all of you to be there. Um, it's an important event where we share about the life and ministry of the church, and also we kind of just have fun and hang out together too. So we'll have a chili cook-off that will be a part of this evening, and we'll start in the gymnasium. We'll eat dinner together. Um, we'll, you'll get to try all various different types of chili that were, order, that were uh, entered in the competition. There will be sandwiches and desserts there as well. And then after a little while, after we eat, we'll dismiss the kids, and we'll have some child care workers to watch kids through the second grade. And then third grade and up, we're all going to stay together, and we're going to present on the ministries of the church and what um, God has been doing in the last few months and what um, God has led us to um, in terms of plans for the months ahead. So you don't have to be a member to attend. We'd love for you to be there um, this evening, and that's in the back building. Um, the youth have an event this afternoon. If you um, are a parent or if you are a youth, make sure that you know about that and coordinate with AJ. They're going to serve at the Dalton Place um, home this, uh, this afternoon and uh, play games with some of the residents, that sort of a thing. But then next week is our missions conference, and this is, this is important as we um, emphasize this. We do this annually. There's a special um, little brochure about the missions conference that shows you the times for Saturday morning, Sunday morning, and Sunday evening. And what we want to emphasize is Saturday morning to you. We will have a number, we will have three different sessions for um, basically adults and, and teenagers um, where we will present to you just different things going on within our community, how our mission partners um, can, uh, we can partner with them in outreach in our own community. Um, you'll have some presentations from like Bill Sims, who serves with Crew. Our guest speaker on, Saturday, on Sunday morning also will be from Crew. But our emphasis for this weekend is on leveraging resources that we have at our hands to be able to share the gospel with our friends, family, and neighbors. Because every single one of us have been called on mission with Christ, have been called to be his ambassadors, have been called to share the gospel with others, make disciples in all nations. It's a responsibility given not to the church as an institution, but to the church as people. And every single one of us as believers in Christ are a part of the church that received that mission. And therefore, uh, this weekend, we're going to focus in on how we can each play a part in that. So you'll be given some resources. Saturday morning, there's going to be separate events for adults and children. The children will have their own special missions presentation and, and focus that morning. I'd really love for all of you to be there if possible. It is going to be a really beneficial, um, really encouraging event. And then Sunday evening, we have a movie night. And this movie, we're going to be presenting one of the um, Jesus Films uh, feature films called Magdalena, which is an outreach tool. But it's also just an engaging movie. It's an engaging story that uh, presents the gospel throughout the film. And what we want you to do is we want you to come with an open mind to just see what these resources through Jesus Film and crew, how these resources can be used enjoy the movie and think about how can I use this story, this resource, to then share the gospel with others. So um, Sunday or Saturday morning, Sunday morning, Sunday evening, we'll have elements of all of that. We also have, we just scheduled uh, the next men's breakfast, which will be on March the 18th. That's a Saturday morning. So please, uh, guys, make, make note of that. That is uh, coming soon as well. But before we go into the scriptures, and we're going to go to 1 Timothy 6, um, as I talk about Crew, or talk about the Jesus Film, it's an international ministry that started as a campus ministry, now has all sorts of different partnerships and aspects to it. But one of the things we're emphasizing with Jesus Film next weekend is the number of evangelistic tools they have through uh, media, through uh, short films and feature films and digital media. And so uh, I did it last week. I'm going to, this week again, show you one of their little video resources. This one's about three minutes 
And it's a part of a question series. The series is called, Do You Ever Wonder? And it answers questions for believers and non-believers about specific, specific truths that we need to know in order to be confident in our faith. So here's a quick presentation from this. Have you ever wondered why followers of Jesus believe the Bible is the same today as when it was originally written? The Bible is God's holy book, written over a span of 1,500 years. It is actually a library of books that teach us about God and his moral standards for all people. It includes the Torah, the Psalms, the Injil, and letters to followers of Jesus. It tells us about our part of the story as God's creation. Some people think the Bible has changed over the years, due in large part to the multitude of translations that exist. The Bible was originally written in three languages and has since been translated numerous times so everyone can read the Word of God in their own language. Some languages even have multiple translations, but they all hold the same message. Every copy of the Bible is a translation of the original texts and can be checked against them. A myriad of archaeological evidence validates modern translations. For example, 981 ancient Bible manuscripts composed between the 3rd century BC and the 1st century AD were discovered near the Dead Sea during the mid-20th century. One of these manuscripts is the Great Isaiah Scroll. It includes all 66 chapters of the book of Isaiah, a book that prophesied about the life and death of Jesus Christ. The Great Isaiah Scroll is the same as the book of Isaiah in the modern Bible. The portion of the Bible that tells us about Jesus was composed by his disciples, who lived during his lifetime in the first century. They sent their writings to multiple regions where other disciples affirmed the truth of what was written, copied it, and sent it to more followers of Jesus. More than 25,000 copies of ancient Bible manuscripts that tell of Jesus have been recovered all of which match one another and are the same as the modern Bible. There's even a complete Bible written in Greek on display in the British Library. This Bible, the Codex Sinaiticus, is dated around 350 AD and is exactly the same as the modern Bible. The Bible has the most recovered copies of any ancient text. Altogether, the evidence proves today's Bible consists of the same scriptures originally written thousands of years ago. So let's say a friend has that question for you. Uh, why do you believe in the Bible? Why do you base your life around this book, this ancient book? And you are looking for a resource that can quickly communicate some powerful truths in, in just a short matter of time. Um, that's what that resource is for. Um, if you may have noticed, you may not have noticed, that that resource was actually created specifically to reach out to Muslims. And the, the way that you know that is by the way the Gospels were referred to in the video. You probably were a little confused when it said the, the Bible contains the Torah and the Psalms and the Injil and the letters to the churches. The Injil is the um, way Muslims refer to the biographies of Jesus, the four Gospels. And so it's a way of reaching out that specific video, answers questions that anyone in our society would have. Can we trust the Bible? But there are some ways that that specific video is tailored specifically for outreach to Muslims. And there's all sorts of videos like that produced through the Jesus film, and we just want to continue to highlight some of those as we prepare for uh, next weekend. But now, let's uh, turn to 1 Timothy chapter 6 together. We'll start actually the end of verse 2 and really go 3 through 10 uh, this morning. In any great story that's ever been written or been told through media or whatever form, there's clear conflict, there's a clear crisis at the beginning, there's a, a protagonist, a, a hero, so to speak, of the story, and there's all these crises that happen along the way as the hero of the story fights against this major crisis 
and overcomes along the journey to the eventual defeat of the evil in, that, so in whatever story, there's all sorts of obstacles to be overcome. There's hurdles. There's a long journey to accomplish and, and minor enemies to defeat in preparing for the, uh, for the eventual final battle. Along the way, too, there's usually some level of inner conflict. Sometimes the good guys have some infighting amongst the team along the way, and on the way towards that final battle, towards that final victory, there's strife not just from the outside but from the inside. And there's a way that humans are wired to be captured by stories like this, that stories grab us because we're looking for these conflict stories so that we can uh, lose ourselves in this story about good versus evil, about this final conflict in which good finally overcomes evil, in which we have some part to play. And so when we, when we read a good story, when we watch a good movie, we, we sort of, whether we realize it or not, sort of picture ourselves in that conflict. And we emotionally connect and engage in that conflict, hoping, hoping to get to the end where finally good conquers over evil. There's a reason that stories like that engage us, because there's, there's echoes of the final story, the, the ultimate story, the meta-narrative in which God defeats evil. And yet, as we as Christians journey through this life, face all of these obstacles along the way, coming to the ultimate end, there is a battle that we face internally that we struggle with. Because the way this story is written, the way the, any epic story is written, nothing can really be complete until that evil is finally defeated. Okay, so let's think about the Christian story, about the Christian life. There's, there's elements of that that are true, right? That in a sense, we are all not living for this life, but living for heaven. And so it, it, we all know, if you've lived as a Christian for five minutes, you recognize that when you become a Christian, the evil doesn't just go away. That though Christ has conquered over evil, you still struggle with sin. You still live in a sinful world in which there's internal battles and external battles all the while you're preparing for this heavenly reality, your eternal home, but living in light of that reality is excruciating at times. Comes with challenges because you know this world ought not be as it is. And yet, you fight, you struggle. And the battle that we face is how do we live lives of godliness that reflect that eternal reality that is coming? Because we as Christians believe that the final battle has been won, right? That the, the final battle is not actually coming in the end. The final battle is actually already guaranteed at the cross of Christ. So we have not realized all the implications of the cross of Christ and the resurrection yet. But the victory was already won in that one, in that one powerful weekend of cross, uh, bur death, burial, and resurrection. So right now, there's a word that I want you to consider that is our whole theme for this morning. It is the battle that we face while we live in recognizing Christ has already won the battle and we have not yet um, embraced or we have not yet received all the implications of that victory. How do we live in a world of sin with our hearts and minds set on eternity? And the word that Paul brings us to consider this morning in 1 Timothy 6 is the word contentment. How do we find contentment in this life? How do we live in this tension of this reality of, man, the world around me is really broken, it's really messed up, and yet I still believe that that eternal reality is coming, that Christ has overcome the grave. But God, why are things still so broken? How do I find rest? How do I find peace? How do I find contentment in the circumstances that are not how I think they should be? That are not as peaceful as it seems like they should be if the God I serve has overcome all evil. Why do I still struggle as I do? This battle is for contentment is what Paul addresses for us this morning. But along the way, the journey of contentment has a couple stages 
uh, throughout this passage. 1 Timothy 6, 3 through 10, we'll, we'll see pictures of three different types of people. And they're all important to this story of contentment. First, we're going to look at the false teachers. We've seen them before in 1 Timothy. They're all over the place in this book of the Bible. Uh, in fact, the main reason that Paul wrote this letter to Timothy is to equip him, encourage him, and release him to go out and battle against the false teachers in Ephesus, the city where he was leading the church. So we'll see the picture of the false teachers. And then we'll see the picture of the godly disciples and what a godly disciple looks like in contrast to the false teachers. But then after we see the godly disciples, we'll see the ultimate end to those that cannot find contentment, the, get, the discontented in verse 9 through 10. Let's read the whole passage, and there's um, just five words from verse 2 that we'll read this morning um, as, as kind of the verse 2 is weird the way it lines up, that part of it goes with the passage before, part of it goes with the passage afterwards. So at the end of verse 2, we'll pick up there and read through verse 10. Teach and urge these things. I believe the things that are referred to there are the things that follow. If anyone teaches a different doctrine and does not agree with the sound words of our Lord Jesus Christ and the teaching that accords with godliness, he is puffed up with conceit. He understands nothing. He has an unhealthy craving for controversy and for quarrels about words, which produce envy, dissension, slander, evil suspicions, and constant friction among people who are depraved in mind and deprived of the truth. Imagining that godliness is a means of gain. But godliness with contentment is great gain. For we brought nothing into the world, and we cannot take anything out of the world. But we have food and clothing, and with these we will be content. But those who desire to be rich fall into temptation, into a snare, into many senseless and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. For the love of money is the root of all kinds of evil. It is through this craving that some have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many pains. Three sections, three different pictures of three categories of people. We'll unpack these and we'll see, hopefully, clearly, what category of people we want to be, who we want to be as reflected in this passage. First, we see the story of the false teachers. There's three aspects of false teachers in this passage. They create new doctrines, false doctrines. They crave controversy, and they covet financial gain. First, they create new doctrines in verse 3. If anyone teaches a different doctrine and does not agree with the sound lords of our Lord Jesus Christ, this is the false teacher. Different doctrine, new doctrine. Now, this doesn't mean we have, to, we have to think critically here about what Paul is saying and is not saying. There's 2,000 years have passed since Paul wrote this letter to Timothy. Things have changed. The way we do church has changed. The way we proclaim the message has changed. The message has not changed. That's the important element in reading any of the New Testament, particularly passages like this that speak of false doctrine. Uh, false teachers have often been called innovators. Doctrinal innovators are false teachers. Why? Because Scripture contains the doctrine. What is the word doctrine? It's a fancy word. I'll tell you what it means. Doctrine is just a word to refer to a set of teachings. The teaching of Scripture that is specific, clear, basic, that reflects who Jesus is, what it means to follow Jesus, what it means to be in relationship with Jesus. How? you enter into a saving relationship with Jesus. That's what doctrine is. And you can have doctrine starts simple and it gets more complex because scripture teaches on a large number of areas. But the simple truth of doctrine is the gospel, how to be in relationship with Jesus and save from your sins, and discipleship, how to follow God, how to follow God and live godly lives. And so the focus here is on these basics of doctrine and not the newness. Now, new days call for the same old truths to be communicated in new ways. That's just reality. Uh, Paul never, never live-streamed a service. Paul never projected on a lighted screen. Paul never used a microphone. 
there are certain things about the way we communicate truth that change in different generations of the church. But the truth doesn't change. The doctrine doesn't change. And so it's good and right for Christians and for churches to find new ways to communicate old truths, to use new technologies, new, new forms of media, such as what I just showed you with the Jesus film. Let's find new ways to communicate really, really old things. We don't have to make up new truths to make them more palatable in the day in which we live. That doesn't help anybody. And so any attempt at doctrine that, tend, that seeks to shade things in a certain direction, say things more carefully so that they will, re, they will be better received within a particular context or culture, we have to be very, very cautious about those types of teachings. Because, according to this passage, if it's different from what Paul taught, Christ and him crucified, then different is dangerous. Different is dangerous because God has given us the truth of Christ and him crucified. And he's given it to us in a very clear way. And so if we know the sound words of scripture, then we can look at other words and we can discern, hey, this sounds a little different. And y'all, this is why we, we live as a Christian community, as, a, as an assembled group together, so that words come up that are strange to somebody's ears. You say, Hey, what do you think about this? I heard this. It sounded different. It sounded new. What do, you, what do you think about that? Bring that to the pastor. Bring that to the elders. Bring that to your church community. Let's talk about it. Because most likely, new stuff, if it is not just restating the ancient truth of the gospel, new stuff it should cause us pause, should cause us concern. Not because we don't believe in technology and we don't believe in innovation, we believe in innovation of methods, not innovation of doctrine. It's an important distinction that is central to who we are as Christians. We don't change the way we believe because culture wants us to or because culture changes. We may change the way we apply certain things because of new challenges that culture brings on. But the core the truth is the same. God still sits on his throne. God has still revealed himself through his word. God still fills us with the Holy Spirit. And God still calls us to walk in simple obedience, focusing on the truths he reveals, walking as his disciples, pursuing godliness. So the danger of the false teacher, let's be clear here. It gets asked about the New Testament a lot. Do false teachers know they're false teachers? In fact, I was in a meeting with some pastors in town on Monday, this past Monday, um, the question was, do, do tares, you know, you know the biblical story of wheat and tares, do tares know that they're tares? Not always. Do, you have sheep and wolves. You have wolves come in in sheep clothing to devour the flock. Do those wolves know that they're sheep? Sometimes, yeah, I think they do. But I, I'm, I'm not sure they always do. The danger of false teaching, the danger of false teachers is those that really believe they found something new, something that everybody's missed, something that's so powerful, you must hear it, you must receive it, it's going to change everything, this is the way we do it now. Those ideas are dangerous. It's better to go back than go forward. Here's what I mean. It's better in the Christian life to go back to what the early church did, to go back to 2,000 years ago when the church was spreading like wildfire. It's better to go back and embrace those ways than to constantly find new ways of following Christ because the, per, the, the false teacher, um, chapter 1, verse 7 of 1 Timothy, here's what he says. Those that want to be teachers of the law but do not know what they are talking about or what they say so confidently. So the false teacher, he understands nothing. He wants to be a teacher, but he doesn't actually know what he's talking about. And he speaks with confidence that he should not have. The New English Bible, y'all, this is my favorite. The New English Bible, I don't have that translation, but one of the, verse, one of the sermons I read, uh, quoted from the New English Bible, describing in 1-7 the false teacher as having, spirit, having zero spiritual understanding and a pompous ignoramus. I wish my Bible said that. That would be kind of cool. But Paul, that actually sort of captures Paul's approach towards false teachers. 
is that he sees the, the arrogance, he sees the, the, the desire to come up with new ways to pull together a following for themselves. That's, that's what they're doing here. The false teachers want to be a little bit different than Paul because Paul's already got this following over here. And Timothy's just building off of Paul's following. But I want my own audience. And if I want my own audience, I can't just do what Paul and Timothy are doing. I've got to do it a little bit differently. And so I'm going to, I'm going to twist some of the things I say. I'm going to be a little bit more provocative in the way I say it. I'm going to challenge the way people think. And I'm going to seek to develop my own following. Sometimes it's intentional, but unfortunately and dangerously, it is not always that a false teacher knows that they're spiritually bankrupt. It's that pride has taken them over, and they don't see what they are doing in fullness. So beware of these types of false teachers. Another way to identify a false teacher is a false teacher in verse 4 craves controversy. Look at what verse 4 says about him. He is puffed up with conceit and understands nothing. He has an unhealthy craving for controversy, for quarrels about words which produce envy, unhealthy, uh, uh, sorry, envy, dissension, slander, evil suspicions, and constant friction among people who are depraved in mind and deprived of the truth. And so the false teachers really love those battles. They really love to argue about doctrine. They really love to pick apart something that somebody else says. They really love to sit down and talk about the minutia of words, quarrels about words, they want to talk about the minutia of words more than they want to talk about the mission of Christ. We should be wary of that. We should be wary of, of such a cynical view of God and the gospel and the Christian movement that anytime something good happens, we think, I don't know about them. I don't trust them because they're, they're growing and people are coming to Christ and they're baptizing a lot of people. I don't know. That, that, might, be, that might be a little suspicious with the way that movement is growing. There's a lot of that sort of craving controversy. You always want to point out what's going wrong and what somebody else is doing. You want to argue about, about words to such an extent that you just wear people out and they're sick of even partnering with you in ministry. What the false teacher does is they come up with something new to say and then they, they twist some words around. They get you to argue about them. Then they, they wear you out and they just you just sort of give up on them and they move on with their false teaching. And what Paul is warning about here, a couple of things. He's warning against new doctrine. And he says, we as the church must be careful. We must know what true doctrine is. I've said it a couple of times. Uh, our um, doctrinal statement, available, um, pretty easy to find on our website. You come to the new members class. You see our doctrinal statement. That is a, a kind of a basic summary of the core truths of the Christian life. We need to fight for some level of doctrine. But we don't fight for all levels of doctrine. We have to be mindful of protecting against false teaching that diminishes any of those core truths of the gospel. But we need to also be gracious and kind to recognize that, um, that not everything that somebody in the name of Christ wants to argue about is actually equally significant. Sometimes you just have people that just want to argue. I want to argue about what the Bible says about, about an issue. And so there's a fine line there. There's a balance that we have to understand that we have to be able to discern between somebody that is a false teacher and must be rejected and somebody that wants to just argue over every little difference of wording and difference of, of explaining something that goes too far, withdrawing the lines too tight. And then ends up attacking real brothers and sisters in Christ. So there's two different concerns here. You have false teachers over here. And then you have the, the false wall builders that are building walls between the body of Christ on uh, lesser significant issues. We have to be careful. We have to be mindful and cautious about both of those things. Let me give you a, an example. Um, in this meeting that I had with other pastors um, this week, one of the topics of con conversation uh, was the... Um, the revival, as it's called, going on at Asbury um, College, and now there's uh, stuff going on at Lee, too, that seems similar. It seems like there's some real uh, Christian college movements of the Spirit, that, that students are responding, students are excited, students are worshiping now 24 hours a day on multiple different campuses in the United States. It's something that I would think 
we would be excited about, something that we would be asking questions of for sure. We, we need some, some good, healthy discernment anytime we see, we see movement. But we have to find a balance in that sort of a situation where we want to be hopeful. See, here's the thing that concerns me is that I talk to some people that because, it's, uh, because they're not from that denomination, they're not from the right church, they actually are cynical about something happening in that place because of the way that university is, because of the way that church is. That should not be our response. Maybe, maybe in certain churches that we have disagreements with their doctrine, we should ask questions, but we shouldn't be so cynical that we actually suspect or hope that that's not God's movement over there. We think that's probably fake because they don't agree with us on everything, and we're not sure about their doctrine, so it's probably not real over there. That should not be the Christian approach to things. We should instead have a hopeful approach where we see people excited about worship, excited about prayer, excited about gathering together as the body of Christ. The word is being read and taught. Uh, true songs are being sung in the presence of God. And people are coming together, confessing sins, and worshiping together. It seems like a movement of God that should be celebrated and embraced. And maybe there's some questions that we ask along the way, sure. But, but one of the things that we have to do in these, and, he, and here's my philosophy on this, Let's let God move where he's moving. Let's let those student leaders, those university leaders, let them, let them embrace what God is doing. Let them be the ones discerning what God is doing. And let's champion, let's support, let's come in from the outside. And sometimes we ask some doctrinal questions. There's nothing wrong with that. But we don't take such a cynical take that we just think, I don't know about that school. I don't know about that church. They do some things wrong, so surely God's not bringing revival there. Well, maybe a little bit more openness would allow us to see what God is doing there and, and for us to crave what God is doing here. If we want to see God doing things like that here, then we need to not spend so much time picking apart what God is doing in other places. And so sometimes we get so caught up in these questions that we ask about doctrine, that we become the ones that crave controversy. We become the ones that are so distrusting of other churches, of other movements, we just want to draw the lines so tight that we end up artificially dividing the body of Christ. When really, maybe there is, maybe in another church somewhere, there's a great spirit of worship there's a great spirit of fellowship and kindness and a spirit of evangelism. But maybe they have some doctrinal weaknesses. What do we do about that? Well, maybe if we come alongside them, we can learn from each other. Maybe we bring a little bit more of the doctrinal clarity and they bring a little bit more of the evangelistic zeal and the worshipful zeal. There's nothing wrong with that. To partner with other bodies of Christ and to pursue the same thing together. We can learn from each other despite our differences within the body. The third aspect. So there's two aspects of the false teachers. They create new doctrines. Be careful. They crave controversy. Be careful about just always wanting to start an argument about the things of God. But number three, they covet financial gain. And this is one way that we see in our day it happening. When you see people um, building up riches, building up their own name, off of the ministry that they're doing, we should be wary of that. We, we should ask some questions. Again, not to the extent of, I don't like that person's style, so therefore they must be a false teacher because they sold a lot of books. It's not that simple. Not everybody that sells a lot of books is a false teacher. We can't, we can't take that approach. But we do need to discern a movement's um, motivations, movement's approach to finances, a movement's approach to, um, to following Christ and what true faithful discipleship really looks like. And so when somebody is motivated by greed, motivated by building a platform for themselves, motivated by selling their own books, um, by getting people to their own conferences, by, by getting their own videos liked and shared and all of those things, we should be cautious. We should recognize that in Jesus' day, there were, there were those that sought to build movements around themselves. And in Paul's day, there were those that sought to, 
latch on to what God was doing by his spirit in the early church and create their own movement so that they could have notoriety. So we need to be cautious about those that create new doctrines, that um, crave controversy, and those that covet financial gain in the ministry. But godliness, godliness with contentment is great gain. Here's a clear contrast in verse 5 and 6, okay? This is where a new group of people are being described. Verse 5, you have the people that think that they can gain off of the word of God, that they can have some level of, of financial gain or some level of notoriety by pursuing godliness. Verse 6 says they're actually part right, but they miss it. Verse 5, the, the godliness that they're seeking that will lead to gain is people that are seeking financial gain out of promoting godliness. Verse 6 is godliness with contentment. The type of godliness that is a biblical definition of godliness. Godliness is well defined in 1 Timothy. That's one of the reasons why I chose it. Because godliness is so crystal clear in this book of the Bible. And, and yet... Many of us miss it because we get, we get weirded out by these definitions of deacon and elder. And so we just skim over those passages and say, I'm not a deacon, I'm not an elder, that's not talking about me. But it is. Because all of those, all of those scriptures in 1 Timothy 3, where we see the definition of what an elder should be and what a deacon should be, the truth of, the simple truth of that is he's just telling you what godliness looks like. Godliness looks like somebody that is above reproach. Godliness looks like somebody who is hospitable, who doesn't quarrel about words, who loves the scriptures, who knows the gospel. Godliness is, looks like somebody that is not greedy. All of those truths from 1 Timothy 3 are echoed throughout the rest of the book to show us what mature Christian living looks like. So we can all learn from those passages. We all now know, because we heard this months ago, this is what 1 Timothy 3 talks about. We all now know what godliness looks like. Above reproach, faithful in marriage, sober-minded, self-controlled, respectable, hospitable, able to teach, a lover of the word, not a drunkard, not violent, but gentle, not quarrelsome, not a lover of money. Those, those last couple are, are repeated in this passage. Maturity means somebody that doesn't like to crave controversy that isn't quarrelsome. Maturity looks like somebody that is not greedy for gain, but rather pursues contentment. So godly disciples content themselves with the gain that comes from godliness. And they can content themselves with just having their basic needs provided for. We live in a world that fuels discontent. Everything around us, every day, is built to get us to be discontented. Everything about our news cycles, everything about the way products are marketed to us, everything about the presentations that we see with our eyeballs and we hear with our ears, every single day is telling us your life would be better if only this. It's the way the world works. Marketing is basically, the, the simple message of marketing is buy this product, it's life-changing. And this brand new, beautiful, shiny tool will change your life if you would only purchase it. And oh, by the way, that product that we sold you two years ago that we said would change your life, it's actually a piece of junk. But this one, this new one, this new model, this is going to change your life now. Sorry for you marketing professionals for my cynical take. But we know that we, we buy things every day because we look and we think, oh man, that looks great. I need that new version. I need that new model. I need a new house. I need new clothes. I need a new phone. I need a new car. Whatever it is, there's that new restaurant. We should try that. All of this newness is built around fueling this discontentment within our lives. And godliness, the Christian life, is built differently. As I said at the beginning, the, the difficulty of where we are is that Christ has already overcome Satan, sin, and, and, um, and death for us. That's already been established. And yet, we have not yet experienced all of the blessings and all the implications of that. So we live in this really weird, uncomfortable middle where we feel discontented. 
because we've been promised eternity. We've been told we're sons and daughters of an eternal king. We've been told one day there will be no more tears, there will be no more pain. One day we are entering into this heavenly, eternal blessedness. And right now, things are hard. And they're still just as messy as they were before we, we chose to follow Christ. So what gives? Paul says, there is great gain in godliness. Godliness pursues the scriptures. Godliness pursues simple character development. Things like self-control. Things like sober-mindedness. Godliness pursues the Christian community. And it's really only there. Only in connection with Christ, through his word, through his people, that we can experience anything like contentment in this life. But it's always going to be a challenge. Paul's talking to Christians in this passage. Paul's talking to Christians who are, are struggling to find contentment in their situation. Oh, by the way, ancient Ephesus was kind of bad in comparison to where we are now. They were a, a, an extreme minority. They were ridiculed. They were spoken down to. They, were not, they had no respect within society as followers of Christ. And just the life in the first century, it was hard. It was rough. Diseases were harder there. Work was harder there. And we live in, a, in an age of great comfort and great discontent all wrapped into one. That should tell us something. When we live in the most comfortable age in society in human history, and yet we live in an age characterized by discontent, what does that tell us? The levels of depression and anxiety among teenage girls are rising, skyrocketing within our generation. Articles that are being published about that over the last week, about the, the really scary levels of anxiety and depression amongst teenage girls. That should concern us. Why is that? Life is a lot easier in so many ways than previous generations, and yet people are so le much less happy, so much less content. Maybe because the grass is greener mentality is a conspiracy from the devil. Maybe because this mentality of one more product, one more step in the right direction, maybe that's the enemy that is trying to deceive a full generation of people to think what we need is just a little bit more money and, and a new job will get us there. What we need is just a, a, a little bit of a better house. And that grass is greener mentality starts to unfold. I don't just need a new job. I don't just need a new house. Now I need a new family. Now my spouse is the problem to my happiness. My discontent is wrapped up in my family situation and maybe I need to get out of it for my own personal health so that I can thrive elsewhere. There are so many difficult things that come within an age of discontent. And Paul says here, let me tell you how to be content, food and clothing. That's how godly disciples find this contentment, with food and clothing. Paul elsewhere says he actually knows the secret of life. He found the secret to living with content. Philippians 4.10 says, I rejoiced in the Lord greatly that now at length you have revived your concern for me. You were indeed concerned for me before, but you had no opportunity. Now, listen to him. Verse 11. Not that I am speaking of being in need, for I have learned in whatever situation I am to be content. I know how to be brought low. I know how to abound. In any and every circumstance, I've learned the secret of facing plenty and facing hunger, abundance and need. And the secret is this. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. Philippians 4.13, a verse lots of us know and memorize. It's really good if you put it, if you write it like under your eyes, like on your eye black, if you're a football player. It's really good to go on like a basketball shoe I can do anything through Christ who strengthens me. It's a verse that so many of us know and so many of us misapply. The verse really means I can endure. I can endure success. I can endure failure. I can endure wealth. I can endure poverty. I can endure health. I can endure sickness. And I can do, endure it all because I found the secret to endurance. I found the secret to contentment. It is the strength that can only come through Christ. Dependence on Christ brings contentment. 
brings that secret of being able to endure. And so we, as Christians, we can take our, a spiritual health check. Look at your own heart. Look at your own life and your own lifestyle. Is your life characterized by contentment? Is your pursuit of pleasure and stuff, your pursuit of life and experience, does that, from the outside looking in, scream somebody that is contented with where they are? Where is your own heart right now? Is it still just thinking, well, yes, I could be happy in my life. I could be content in my life. But there's this thing that's a barrier. The bad news is that you could get over that barrier. But if you get over that barrier, there's just going to be another barrier. There's going to be a new field over there that's a little bit greener. And you're going to have to get over there to get to the stage of contentment. You're going to have to cross another hill. You're going to have to climb another wall. And that wall is always going to be moving until you find contentment and true joy, true peace that surpasses all understanding that can only be found in Christ. The scriptures say, be anxious for nothing but in everything by prayer and petition with thanksgiving. Present your request to God. And the peace of God, which transcends all understanding, will guard your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. That's contentment. The peace of God that transcends all understanding. But how do we get there? We get there by presenting our requests to God. But here's what I did with that verse. I tricked you because I picked up where everybody picks up on that verse, and that's not where that verse is supposed to start. Do not be anxious for nothing, or do not be anxious about anything, or be anxious for nothing. Those mean the same thing. That is not the beginning of the verse. The beginning of the verse is, the Lord is at hand. So, do not be anxious about anything. Don't make overcoming anxiety a work that you have to accomplish in order to be a good, contented Christian. You can overcome anxiety. You can, but it's only through Christ who strengthens you. It's only because the Lord is at hand. That's the only reason we're able to then present requests to God and find contentment and find the peace that surpasses all understanding. There's a pathway, and it involves us recognizing our sin, our brokenness, our incapacity to fight against our own anxiety, depression, and discontentment. We recognize that. We come to the cross of Christ in full repentance, and we fully depend on him to die for our sin, to resurrect so that we can have new life. And it's only by embracing that new life with Christ and that new priority of what the life with Christ creates for us, that we're not living for tomorrow. We're living for eternity. And eternity, eternity is promised even when tomorrow looks really crummy. Even when tomorrow brings fear and discontent, we can let go of our anxiety and seek the peace that surpasses all understanding because of what Christ has done and what Christ has accomplished. Now, the last category of people here, the discontented, are those who desire to be rich. They fall into temptation, into a snare, into many senseless and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin. And then finally, in verse 10, the love of money is a root of all kinds of evil. It is through this craving that some have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many pains. So the three aspects of the discontented, they fall into temptation, they plunge into ruin, and they wander from the faith. That's the progression of the one that doesn't find contentment in Christ and what he has revealed and the gifts that only Christ can bring. Again, Paul is talking to the church. So in verses 3 and 5, when he gives a picture of false teachers, he's talking about people that are in the church trying to distract the church and mislead the church. In verses 6 through 8, he's giving all of us a picture. Here's what contentment can look like. Here's how you can actually find happiness, contentment, true joy in life. And then verses 9 and 10, he said, this is what happens when you don't find contentment in the wrong place. This is the result. That people that outwardly look like Christians, that are assembling as the body, they're so focused on riches, they're so focused on finding um, fulfillment in the wrong things, that they fall into temptation. They plunge themselves into ruin as they pursue those temptations. And eventually they look up one day and they say, that Jesus stuff, the church stuff, wasn't good enough. I never found contentment there when really they were never seeking contentment in the things that Scripture gives. 
in the truth of Christ and the life that Christ offers through life and life abundantly. And so what do we do? I'm going to give you three responses. Number one, there's no way to truth, or there's no way to peace other than protecting the truth. You protect the truth that God is who he says he is. There's a reason that that I felt like that three-minute video on why we can trust the scriptures goes with today's discussion because if we don't know what this book says and we don't trust what this book says, then we can know nothing in this life. That's the truth. So we fight for the truth of what God says. Fight for the truth of who he is, that Christ really did die, suffer, and he really was raised again from the dead. We preach that truth to others because everybody needs to hear it. And maybe there's somebody in this room that really hasn't heard it at the heart level and embraced it and been changed. And if that's you, then now today's the time to change. As we prepare to take this table, here's what, here's what this truth proclaims. Right here, we have what we call the Lord's table, the communion supper that we're about to participate in together. And in this, we have the broken body of Christ, represented by this cracker here, because Jesus picked up the bread the night before the cross and he broke it and he said to his followers, this is my body broken for you. And then he picked up the juice and he said, this is my blood shed for you. This meal proclaims the gospel in a real physical way that the only way to find peace, hope, and contentment in this life is receiving the broken body of Jesus and receiving the shed blood of Jesus. So this offer stands for each one of you. This is a table, a meal offered to those that have responded to Jesus for salvation and know that they are with Christ, a new creation. And if that's true of you, then when we take it in a few minutes, take it and receive it. So we protect the truth. We also pursue godliness. Because this isn't just, this doesn't just end here. As if once we receive Christ, That's the end of it all, and everything's suddenly easier. No, we are called to endure, to fight for contentment, and pursue obedience with Christ, pursue living like Jesus, pursue honoring God in any and every circumstance and challenge that we face. So we protect the truth, we pursue godliness, and I forgot what it was because I lost my notes up there. Give me that last screen. We promote something that has to do with my last point. It's going to come up. It's no surprise it's all here. We promote contentment. Somebody out here is listening. We protect the truth. We pursue godliness and we promote contentment. The thing that we do in the church that is messed up is we promote success sometimes. Sometimes we promote, we honor those people that are earthly successes, that have these amazing stories of how they found success either in the business world or they found success in, in, in life in, some, in whatever way. We promote those. They're the heroes of our story. What we need to promote is those that find contentment in the trials of life because those are the ones that are finding what it means to be like Jesus. We follow a suffering Savior, shed blood, broken body, and we embrace suffering as we follow him. So I'm going to ask those that are serving to come forward and join me. The band's going to get on stage behind me, and here's how we're going to approach this supper today. I'm going to ask that you would... Uh, as the, the plate gets passed around, receive it. The bread's going to come first, and just hold it and receive it, and wait, and we'll, we'll do this all together at the end of the song. So the bread comes first, and the juice is going to get passed around. Hold both of them, and you can take the posture that is most fitting to worship and responding to the blood of Jesus. You can stand and sing. You can sit and pray by yourself. You can pray with your family. You can come forward to the altar and you can pray for those around you. But now is a time of reflection. And what we do in the Lord's Supper is we prepare to receive again 
this experience of the body of Christ um, being consumed by us physically as a reminder of what has happened in a real sense, not a figurative sense, but a real sense. We have received the body of Christ into ourselves, and we are now a part of his body as the church. So let me pray for us, and then we'll see this together. Father, I praise you. I thank you. Because your broken body, your shed blood, has been made real to us. This is not just a thing that we do. It's not just a, a rote practice. It's an act of worship. As we consume this bread, we remember that we have been united to you through your cross. As we consume this juice, we remember we have been united to you as your blood has been shed for forgiveness of our sins a real sacrifice and it's a real life that we have in you so father give us fresh grace your scriptures say that your mercies are new every morning and i pray this morning there will be new mercies for those of us that are struggling in this battle of finding contentment in life may we find that secret that paul found christ's strength in any and every circumstance that fills us and contents us. So Father, use this supper, this broken body and this shed blood to reignite our worship, reignite our contentment in you. In Christ's name we pray.
Now take the bread in your hand. And remember that Jesus was the one that instituted this meal. There were pictures, beautiful pictures, of what Christ was going to do, put into the history of Israel thousands of years earlier, when God, in the final plague, he sent to the Egyptians as the Israelites were being were being rescued, were being ransomed out of slavery in Egypt. He had them gather together for this Passover meal where they consumed unleavened bread. And it was that unleavened bread of the Passover that Jesus then, years later, would sit in the upper room with his disciples and say, actually, all along, this was pointing to me. You thought it was about your ancestors being delivered from slavery in Egypt, but this is actually my, my body that's broken for you. Now in 2023 in Dalton, Georgia, a room of sinners saved by grace gets to gather together and partake of this and remember that the body of Jesus, the Son of God, was broken for us. We do this in his name. And then the cup. To forgive us of our sins, to make atonement, to pay the payment. Again, a part of the Passover supper, but always intention to be pointing towards the once and for all sacrifice. Never again will there be a need for blood sacrifices because Jesus paid it all. So we do this in remembrance. When we receive the Lord's Supper together, what we always do is we then receive a special offering afterwards. This offering that we're about to receive as these guys pass it out, we call this the Samaritan offering. Um, this is not how we support the general ministries of the church. This is not how we keep the lights on where we pay our staff or we support our missionaries. This money goes out of the church to serve a community in need. That's why we call it the Samaritan Fund. And so as I pray for this offering, I'd really ask you to consider how you can be used of God today to support what God is doing, to meet people with real physical felt needs that need financial assistance in the situation that they're in. But along with that financial assistance, comes the message of the gospel and the grace of Jesus. So pray with me. Father, I thank you that as we have received freely, now we can give freely. So we pray that you would bless this offering. Bless us as your servants, as your ambassadors, as we seek to live for your glory. May the monies received from this offering be used to bless the right people, to provide for physical needs, but also deliver the truth of the gospel. Christ Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Oh, great is thy faithfulness. Great is thy faithfulness. Morning by morning, new mercies I see. And blessing from the Lord together. After the sacrifice, the high priest would come out, stand amongst the people, and proclaim this blessing from Numbers 6, 24, and 26. And we, as being redeemed by the blood of Christ, receive this blessing as we pray.
The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace. Amen. Go in peace.